verse from Solomon, and certainly the book as a whole is Proverbs of Solomon, though we know Solomon was not the compiler, at least not the whole book, because in chapter 25 and verse 1, these are also a Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So somebody else put all this collection together, but still in the, in the greater part, Solomon is the author of the Proverbs. But these last couple of chapters are not Proverbs that Solomon wrote or that Solomon said. You might be able to say they would be Proverbs inspired by Solomon and that wisdom, you know, mindset that Solomon had, but God inspired other people besides just Solomon uh, to, to write. And uh, so these are other inspired Proverbs, but not ones from Solomon himself. And we'll find out a little bit more about who wrote uh, the ones in chapter 30 as we begin. So uh, would somebody read chapter 30, verses 1 to 9? The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukul. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I, may, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Okay. Now, we start out with verse 1. There are two possible meanings of this, two possible translations. And the one that Jacob had in the text in the New American Standard, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel, and Eucal. But probably better is to take those words, Ithiel and Eucal, not as names, but as what those words mean. You know, you always got that question. Is something a name, or is it what it means? And remember, names always had meaning back there. Um, and so if, if we took it as what it means, it would be, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, I am exhausted. And that may be better. Uh, it doesn't matter a whole lot, perhaps, but... Uh, that may be what he's saying. At any rate, these words come from Agur, the son of Jacob, and I don't know anything else about him other than he's the one who wrote these words. But he tells us something about himself in verses 2 and 3. Uh, what do we learn about his credentials to uh, tell us all this stuff? He's pretty stupid. Yeah. He's more stupid than any man. He doesn't have the understanding of a man. He hasn't learned wisdom. He doesn't have the knowledge of the Holy One. So, um, what do you think about that? Really motivate you to be uh, studying these Proverbs? Why write these to us if he doesn't know anything? Well, you think that's his starting point? Yeah. Uh, maybe so. 
Uh, in a way, that's exactly what happens. You know, if you're going to be wise, what is the starting point? Being stupid. Yeah. And seeing that you're stupid, seeing that you're ignorant. You know, Agur begins where Job left off, more or less. Job says some very similar things. In 40 and verse 4, Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In 42, uh, uh, 6, 42, 3, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And he retracted this and repented in dust and ashes in, in Job 42, verses 3 and 6. Well, in the same way, Agur is seeing that he doesn't know anything. We will never learn anything until we recognize that we don't know anything. If you think you know something, then you rely on what you know and you don't listen to the Lord and depend on Him. But when we acknowledge, I'm stupid, I don't understand anything, I don't know anything, I don't have any wisdom, then we're open to listening to God and just learning from Him. Now our problem often is, okay, God knows something, we know God's smart, but we know some things too. It's not like we're ignorant. And so we sort of filter what God's word says through what we think about things and how we see things because we think highly of our own wisdom and understanding. Well, when we do that, we really don't ever learn anything because we're relying on ourselves. Here's a man who's willing to say, look, I don't know anything. And I can't, I can't learn anything I must listen just to God and just accept and follow his will since I myself am ignorant. Do you see that idea? That's really where we need to all be. I don't know anything. All there is is what God says because as far as I'm concerned myself, I'm ignorant and more stupid than anybody. It sounds bad, but it's really the first step. Have you ever tried to teach somebody something that they really didn't know anything about, but they kind of thought they did? You know what happens in that situation? How does that work? Just give up. You might as well not bother. Because? They're not going to listen to you. Yes, because they think they already know something. And it just turns out to be quite a disaster. You know, the first step toward learning is to admit to ourselves our ignorance. Because otherwise, how, why are we going to learn? If you think you know something, and somebody, what, what, what if you think you know how to get somewhere? And somebody tries to correct you. But if you think you know how to get there, you don't listen to them correcting you. You do what you think you know. Well, if you are wrong, if you really don't know, You'd have been better off accepting that and listening. So do you see that idea? This is a funny, funny statement at first. And it makes you shake your head and think, well, I don't want to be reading this then. But we do want to read from the people who acknowledge their ignorance and are willing to turn to the Lord. Comments and thoughts on that? Stephen has said before, like, let the word of God dissect you instead of like you dissecting it. 
um, just like approach it with the idea that this is supposed to change me, not that I'm supposed to fit this into my preconceived way of thinking. That's exactly right. Because when we do that, then we tend to say, well, yeah, but this isn't exactly the way it is. And, you know, I don't quite see it that way. And, you know, you've got to modify this for our modern times. And, you know, we end up not being really trusting in what God says because we're constantly kind of shaping it according to our own viewpoint of things. Now, that fits right in with verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who's gathered the wind in his fist? Who's wrapped the waters in his Who's established all the ends of the earth? Who? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. What does that sound like to you? What other passage? Job. Job. Remember when God finally comes in Job, in Job chapter 38 and following, and, and you know, Job has questioned God and really criticized God for a lot of things. And God comes down, and basically, what does God do with Job? Interrogates. Interrogates him. That's exactly, puts him in his place. Says, okay, Job, you know everything. Tell me about this. Tell me about this. He starts asking him questions about how he created. Now, you were there, right? And so you know how I did this, and how did I do that, and why this, and why that, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, what does Job know about the engineering intricacies of the creation? Nothing. You know, what does he know about running the creation? Nothing. You know, God asked him those things to try to humble him and put him in his place. Well, it's the same idea here. You know, okay, so tell me, you know, what about this, what about this, what about this, if you know so much, if we don't even know basic stuff, like, uh, you know, how do you make life? That'd be kind of basic, wouldn't it be? You know, what do you do to do that? Or, or maybe even just, uh, how do you create? I don't really care what you want to create. What would you like to create? You know, how, how would you create this shirt? Now, could you create this shirt? Some of you who sew, could you create this shirt? You need a pattern. You need a pattern. What else do you need? Material. Material. Now when God created, what kind of material did he use? Nothing. Yeah, he created the material. See, the only thing we ever do is make. We never create. Because to create would mean you'd actually start with nothing and make the material out of nothing. We always have to start with something God created, and then we can make something out of it. God created. So figure out something you can create, you know, just to start with. You know, even if you could create something, it wouldn't mean you would understand what God knows about the universe. But start with creating something simple. We haven't figured out how to create one thing. We always start with something that God created and we'll make that into something. So we just have no knowledge. We have to all see we are ignorant and we need the Lord's revelation. 
You know, God understands it all, and we are just so incredibly limited, and so it's really dumb for us to think we're smart, and that we've got it figured out, and try to filter, as Mindy was saying, God's word through our own way of looking at things. That's not wise. So that's what he begins with in those first four verses. Comments and questions about that? What did you say you call um, let's see, uh, you call is, da, 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 da. I am exhausted. Uh, does anybody have a translation? Uh, most of us have the American Standard, I think, but in verse 1, where it doesn't say ethyl and eucal, it actually, what do you have? It says, the man declares, I'm tired, God, I'm tired, God, and I'm exhausted. Yeah, okay. What do you have? Is that the... Um, Common English Bible? Common English Bible. Anybody got another translation? What do you have? ESV. What does it say? It says, the man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. See? So, it's just a question of, should you treat those as proper names, or does he mean for us to, to take the meaning of those words? And I prefer, you know, the translation that, that Eric had. I think it's probably not proper names. It probably means we ought to translate what those actually mean. But there are a few other passages, don't ask me where at the moment, where that is a, a question. Um, in Isaiah 8, you've got a question of whether or not it's Emmanuel talking about Jesus as Emmanuel, or whether or not it's God with us, which is the meaning of Emmanuel. There's other things like that uh, throughout the Bible. Most of the time it's obvious, but every once in a while it's like, well, did he mean that for that? There's a couple times when we don't know whether it meant Adam as the historical Adam, or what it, whether it meant man, which is what Adam means. You know, several things kind of like that. And most of the time, it's obvious, you know. But, but this one's one that's not so obvious. There's one New, New Testament name where he calls him the good brother. Oh, yes, good point. I hadn't thought about that. It was Philippians 4.3 where he's trying to get these two women to get along and he says, and I urge you, and in the New American Standard, true comrade, yeah. to get involved and help them. But what I think is more likely is there he means it to be a proper name and he's making a play on it. This guy, whose name would be like Sisygus or something, he's calling him, you are your name, you are a true comrade, and you get involved and help them. Um, but you do have, you know, one like that, too. That's a good, good thing to remember. So that, that's the question here. Other thoughts? Well, thankfully, we've got five and six. Here's the alternative. Every word of God is tested. He's a shield of those who take refuge in him. Here's how we can know the truth, know about God, God's revelation. So knowing things doesn't depend on us coming up with the truth, but accepting what God reveals. God does know everything. You can't say about God he's more stupid than any man. God knows everything. So if we just listen to God's words and we just speak them, then we can understand things because we have God's revelation. That is such a key thing, not to believe anything besides what God says. If God didn't say it, we don't really know it. You know, we have a lot of problems sometimes with like philosophical ideas 
that really aren't according to what the Bible says, but they seem right to us. And that's where we've got to just say, we don't know anything. Only God's word is the truth. And so we limit ourselves to just what God says. You know, when you try to go beyond that, I hear people doing that sometimes. I'll hear sermons that are full of human good ideas, but they don't have very much Bible in them. Or if they have Bible, they're just kind of twisted Bible verses to prove this idea I've got, whatever it is. Well, human ideas are not very helpful. God's word is it. So that's what we need to listen to. I think we're going to get a lot out of what Agur says because he's not speaking of his own mind. He's just revealing the tested, proven word of God. God's word's totally trustworthy. Don't build your life on hunches and speculations and feelings. See that idea? And let me go one step beyond that. You know, he says, don't add to his words. That means, don't try to, in addition to what God reveals, add your own ideas. We don't have anything to contribute. If you try to supplement what God says with your own ideas, you'll just make it wrong. You'll just twist it and make it something that's not true by the addition of your own ideas. So to say, no, nothing that I think is all what God says. Beyond that, we just don't have real knowledge. That's humbling. We don't like to think we're that ignorant on our own. But it's true, and the person who admits that is the smartest one of all when it's all said and done. All right, comments and thoughts on all that? Yes, Jake. Uh, Colossians talks a lot about not going away to different human teachings and traditions. And he says several times, just stay according to Christ. And so, I mean, that's what we have to do. If it, and Even though he says lots of things, things have the appearance of wisdom. And they seem good. They are tempting to us because we like them. But that's not God's words. And yeah. they aren't tested. Excellent. Colossians 2 is a tremendous passage. We are complete in Christ. He has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, how many are outside of Christ? Zero. <laughs> There's no wisdom or knowledge outside of Christ. You know, I don't mean by that that human beings have not managed to figure out some things about, say, how the body operates or, you know, some things about stars, although, you know, there's a lot of stuff even we think we figured out that we go back and realize we were wrong. <laughs> but, you know, we have some ability to understand some things about what God made. But I'm talking about as far as, you know, what life's all about, what man's all about, what God's all about, all of that. We, anything worthwhile is in Christ. If it's not in Christ, it's worthless. Let me point out one more thing about this passage in verse 5. Every word of God is tested. You know, one of the problems we have in studying the Bible is favoritism. That is, we tend to favor certain passages and ignore others. Well, since every word of God is tested, we really need it all. It's one thing I've really not wanted to do. I know some preachers who are specialists in some part of the Bible. Maybe there's some value there, and I don't know, but I didn't want to be a specialist in some part of the Bible. I wanted all of it, because it's all 
tested and true and profitable. So if you're one of these kind of people who, man, you've got this favorite book in the Bible, and every time you study the Bible, you just want to study that book, well, you're missing out on some stuff you really need. Diversify. Other thoughts on these first six verses? Verse 1 says, um, The oracles of Agar, the son of Jekka, the oracle, or the burden. Um, earlier we were talking about proverbs and different things like that. What's the difference between a proverb and an oracle or a burden? Well, maybe they're saying slightly different things. An oracle just means, or a burden, it's the same word. It just means like something revealed from God. Wisdom is a revelation from God that gives practical information for how to apply the knowledge in your life. So wisdom would be a subcategory of the oracles of God. Oracles more general. Eric? When you're talking about uh, the importance of every word of God proving true, I, it made me think of Psalm 119, 160, where it says the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endure, endures forever. Yes, exactly. I mean, if there's part of the Bible you just don't really study, well, it may be the very part you need right now. Learn it. I've really, that's been my, always my goal. My goal is to major in the things that I know the least in the Bible. And that doesn't always happen quite that way, but that's my goal. So if there's some books I'm weak in, I'm working toward working on them. And because I want to know all of it. And if there's something in the Bible that you think, man, I just don't get anything out of that. You know what that means? You don't know it well enough yet. That's probably what you need to work on. Other thing? Well, the first thing he wants from God, two things, seven to nine, things that he thinks are really important. This is like the only prayer in Proverbs. And uh, there are two specific areas that he really feels like he needs God's help in. One is keep deception and lies far away from him. Boy, we need that. Stay away from lying, dishonesty, deception, big problem. He, he feels that need. The other one is to give neither poverty nor riches. That is, you know, keeping him sort of so-so financially. And there's a value in that, maybe, that we wouldn't think about, and he explains it. Now, can you see why you would ask God not to give you poverty? Besides the fact that we don't like to be in poverty, what's the spiritual value of not being impoverished? You're tempted to steal and defend God. Yes, when you're poor, you're more tempted to do things that are wrong to get money. So keep me away from poverty. But now it's a little harder to ask, keep me away from riches. Why would we want him to keep us away from riches? Then we might, might get full of these riches and we might think, well, now I'm good and I don't need anything more from you. It tends to give the illusion of self-sufficiency. It tends to make us feel independent of God. You know, that's Deuteronomy 8, where Moses said before the Israelites crossed into Canaan that God's going to bless you a lot with prosperity in Canaan. Beware lest you forget God because you're full and you have what you need. That is a very dangerous thing for us. 
And do you see here then that for Agur, the primary thing is not being led into sin. More important than whether or not you have wealth or poverty is, is not being in a position where you're tempted to do wrong or think improperly. So he wanted God to give him what was going to be best for him spiritually. And spiritually, he'd be better off not being poor, not being rich. Sometimes we don't care about how we are spiritually, just give me what I want. It might be difficult for us to honestly pray to God, please don't give me poverty or riches. That's a tough thing to pray. Because, well, the poverty, yeah, but the riches, that'd be cool. But, but if you think about how much your soul is worth, being in a situation where you're not so tempted to feel self-confident is worth it. Now another thing I, you can say about 7 through 9 is that this shows his humility. He's acknowledging his own weaknesses and needs. Sometimes we struggle with that even with God. Do you ever ask God for things that you really need because you need them to grow or to do better spiritually? You've got to admit, I'm not self-sufficient. Edgar is willing to do that. So I think it's encouraging to see just his whole attitude in those first nine verses. He does not think he's got it all together. He desperately needs God's help. Comments and thoughts on that? Well, that leads into a whole section of sayings that are interesting. Um, they are mostly kind of numerical kinds of sayings. Now the first set, he doesn't actually like say, here's how many of this I have, and here's how many of that I have. Then he'll go into a section where he actually counts them, and he'll tell you, here's three, here's four, whatever. But, but you'll see how this works as we go through this. It actually... Uh, and I don't know if we'll do too much with this, but there's actually quite an, a kind of a, um, a outline, a pattern, I guess you could say, if you really work on that here. But for now, we'll just try to kind of get what he's saying. So this first set is 10 to 16. Somebody read 10 to 16. Do not slander or slave to his master, or he will curse you, and you will be found guilty. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, and his jaw teeth like knives, to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters, give, give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. Okay. So, first unit, verse 10, is just one proverb and there's no title for it. He says, don't slander a slave to his master, or he'll curse you and you'll be found guilty. You know, do not 
verbally slander other people, not even a slave. If there's anybody you thought you could get by with slandering, it'd be a slave because he doesn't have any real clout in society. But God is watching. And think about how there, somebody can curse somebody, like call God's wrath down on somebody. And, and in the ancient world, that really bothered people. You know, if somebody issued a curse against somebody, may God, you know, punish this person. People often would get frightened because they think it's going to happen. Well, whether it would happen or not depended on whether or not it was deserved. You know, groundless curses, we've seen that already in the book of Proverbs. You don't have to worry about that. They're okay. But a curse that's deserved, God will listen and punish. And God cares about the slave. So you slander a slave to his master, even a slave, and he curses you, God will listen and cause you to be punished for doing that. Give justice even to the weak. You know, don't speak badly of a slave to his master because God's going to be listening. So don't, so, can you think of a reason why you might slander a slave to a master? Status with the master. I think so. You can see different situations in which, you know, you're going to get it good with the master. And see, the slave can't do anything about it. So he's not going to be able to, to hurt you. And so you put him down before the master, and that'll raise you up. But you're forgetting about God when you do that. So that's worth meditating on a little bit as far as its application in our own lives. Then he's got these four things that there's no initial title on these either. There's a kind of a man that. And he has four different kinds. In verse 11, what kind of a man does he talk about? The one who curses his parents. Yes. What do you see in somebody who curses and doesn't bless his parents? What kind of attitude do you see in that? Pride. Pride? Lack of thankfulness. Lack of thankfulness. Selfish. You know the word we often use for that these days is disrespectful. You know, not respecting the parents. Um, having a bad attitude towards superiors. You know, sometimes it's really annoying to have somebody above you. Somebody who can tell you what to do. <laughs> you ever found that annoying? You know, we kind of like to be able to do what we want to. And so there's kind of almost, you know, this natural tendency to not like parents because they're kind of in control and they can kind of tell me what to do. I don't really want that. Uh, but that's God's order. In fact, name me one person that doesn't have somebody above them. We've got God above us no matter what. But really, pretty much everybody has somebody who has some authority over them, and we have to respect that uh, authority relationship. So this kind of a man is not good. Now, now, really, in the original, there wasn't even a there is. It was just like, kind of a man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. Kind who, and every one of these kinds is talking about a category that's bad. Here, here's a kind, there's a kind, there's another kind. 
So in verse 12, what kind of a person does he talk about? One who's pure in his own eyes. Yeah, but not in reality. In fact, the word here, yet is not washed from his filthiness. The word filthiness there is a really strong word. Kind of like, uh, imagine somebody who, uh, well, uh, to, I'm not trying to gross you out or anything, but, but you know, uh, you can kind of get accustomed to your own odor. And so you may get to where you don't really realize that you don't smell too well. And so what if you're the kind of person who thinks that you really smell fine and the reality is you stink? You know, that, that'd really be bad, wouldn't it? Have you ever wondered about things like that? <laughs> you know, I wonder what everybody else smells when they're around me or, you know, whatever, you know? Because, <laughs> uh, like, you know, you don't really know since you're you. <laughs> and you would assume you've been around people now and then who seem not to realize quite, you know, that they haven't taken a shower recently enough, and uh, you're assuming probably they just don't know about it. But it's really bad when somebody thinks they're really clean, and you can tell they're really not. Well, that's just physically. I'm just using that as an illustration. He's thinking about spiritually. You know, here's a person who thinks that they're really pure, they're really righteous, they're really doing well. And the truth is, they're really grossing God out with all their wickedness. And we've got a word for that. What's our word? Pharisee? Yeah, Pharisee is good. Self-righteous. Hypocrite. Hypocrite, yeah. Those are words we use where, where, where you're deluding yourself. You know, and that's really scary. Have you ever wondered if that's true with you? Could it be that I just think I'm pure, but God and everybody else sees how wicked and corrupt I am? You know, that's even more scary than imagining that everybody else smells you and uh, <laughs> you can't smell yourself. Because uh, everybody else may smell us spiritually, and especially God, and we think, oh, I'm great. We've got to have more honesty in looking inside of ourselves. So that's a bad kind of a person. You can see all four of these are not people you want to be like. Now here's the kind of person in verse 13, what's he like? Proud. Yeah, he's proud. How can you tell? From his eyes. From his eye. Do your eyes tell that you're proud? What's he talking about with that? Have you ever thought somebody's eyes could show you they were proud? How would that work? Down your nose, or? <laughs> yeah, and kind of, kind of, you know, having your head up in the air, and like you think you're just above everybody else, though. You know, we we talk about having your nose in the air, maybe, or something like that, where you're just kind of acting like I'm better than everybody else, and you can see that with kind of the eyes, kind of looking down as you're up here. You know, it's just a way of describing arrogance. And that stinks. Arrogance is horrible. Thinking you're too high. You know, what, what are things people are often prideful about? Accomplishments. Accomplishments. You know, oh, I did this, this, and this. What else? We're proud of... Heritage. 
Yeah. Sometimes we're proud of like our family or our background in something. Yeah. What else? Possessions. Yeah. Riches often you're not usually how much money you have in the bank, but more like what for young people, what would they tend to be proud of in terms of possessions? Car. Their car. It's a guy, especially maybe girls too sometimes. You know, having a cool car, you know. And, and, you know, what's important in a car for a, to be proud of it? It looks good. Looks good, and what else would give you status with a car? Sounds like a giant mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, loud. Yeah, sounds like it's got a hole in the exhaust. That usually helps. Uh, what? It's fast. You know the other thing that I think is important in a car for young people to give status? What is it? It's an accessory. What do you want in your car? Your radio. Speakers and radio and sound system and all that. Isn't that important? Doesn't that give you status? Maybe not. Seems like it does to some, some people. Or what else could give you this arrogant attitude? What are we, what are we proud of? Our talents. Our talents. How about our intelligence? Sometimes our education. Sometimes people are just proud of how they look. Isn't that true? You know, I think they look really, you know, pretty or you know, handsome or cool or you know, whatever. Well, this idea of having your eyes up in the air, cut it out. You know, that kind of arrogant person is bad. What about verse 14? What kind of a guy is this? His teeth are like swords. Nice. What's that saying? Really sharp guy. <laughs> He's vicious. He's vicious. Vicious, exactly. Great work. He tries to oppress others. You know, he'll use what he has, his power, to destroy the afflicted, the needy, you know, take advantage of other people and use them to elevate himself and to enhance his position. So, you've got four classes, the disrespectful, the self-righteous, the arrogant, and the vicious. That, you know, you don't want any part of those. Those are four kind of people you don't even want to be around. Comments or questions on that little segment? So, you've had this first proverb, verse 10, just kind of a thrown-in proverb. Then you've got 11 to 14, these four kinds that are bad. Then you've got the, the first part of 15. The leech and its daughters. The leech has two daughters. You know what a leech is, right? What does a leech do? Suck blood. suck blood or suck stuff. Well, what is the leech's two daughters' names? Give and give. Give and give. Now, isn't that kind of a funny thing to say? The leech has two daughters. Give, give. Like, okay. <laughs> what are we supposed to get out of that? That's all there is to it. You think there would be like give and take or give and receive? No, just give and give. <laughs> so what does the leech remind you of? God. No, no. no not, not God really. Yes. Yeah, God wants to give, but here the leech is not saying he wants to give. Give to me. Give to me. 
The leech is saying, give, give, because they're trying to suck stuff. So that reminds you of what kind of a person? Greedy. Always wants, wants, wants. Do you know anybody like that? That their, their, their slogan is give, give, but they don't mean I give. They won't mean you give. <laughs> That's bad. Leeches are not something you want to get tangled up in. Uh, so avoid them. And that fits with this next section, which is three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Four examples of greed. The first one is shield. Now by shield there, what he really means, in my judgment, is death or the grave. Would you think of the grave as being greedy? Why? Takes everybody. Yeah. Have you ever known the uh, death to say somebody's about to die and say, "Wait a minute, I've got enough. I don't need any more. Just stop right there." Well, no. The grave is always ready for more victims. So that that that's kind of a weird way maybe to think about it, but it always takes in more. And the barren womb. Now, this was more true in their society than in ours. But, for most of you, even young ladies, do you want one day to become a mother? Is that important to you? Most of the time, at least as we get a little bit older, that is important. Have you ever known, say, a, a wife who had a miscarriage? How is that for a woman? That's really devastating. Maybe your mother has had one or whatever. It's horrible because a woman wants to have a child. And, and, and you know, you don't, our neighbor across the street, we don't know her real well. She's in her 80s, but Sanders become friends with her. She's come over a few times. She was not able to have children. And you can see that that still bothers her. You can imagine now in her 80s, she has nieces and nephews she's close to. You know, that's been helpful to her. And even children of her nieces and nephews, great nieces and nephews she's close to. But she was never able to have children. I don't think you ever get to where you're satisfied with that. You know, for most women, you just want children. You know, it's not like you say, oh, well, okay, I want to have children. <laughs> you know, th there's that constant desire for more never stops wanting a child and then the earth is never satisfied with water we noticed that this summer didn't we did you have a drought in your area you know is it weird when you have a drought you know have you ever had a lot of rain where you live like a lot of rain yeah do you ever think, man, I wish it would just quit raining and never rain again? Well, no, you don't want that. Because the earth always needs more. Maybe you could take a little break. But I'll tell you, it's amazing with crops. You can have, you look in the early summer, and you can have had rain, like rain, 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 all April and May, just like rain all the time. And you give about two weeks where it doesn't rain, and like the corn really needs it. And the farmers start talking about it. it's getting really dry. 
You think it will just start? It would just stop raining two weeks ago. Doesn't take long before the earth needs more water. It's always wanting more. And the last one, the fire that never says enough. You know, think about a fire. Uh, if if you got like a campfire, what do you what do you do to keep it going? Feed it. Feed it. What do you feed it? Yeah, wood, you know, sticks, you know, logs, whatever. Gasoline. Gasoline, yeah. Gasoline doesn't last real long, so. <laughs> but yeah, you feed it stuff to burn up. You ever had a fire and you tried to, try, tried to throw a log and it's like, no, no, no. But the fire is like done. It doesn't want any more. <laughs> no, the fire always takes more. Think about forest fires. They ever just kind of, oh, we burned long enough. We're just going to stop here. Well, no. A fire will just, as long as you keep feeding it stuff, as long as it's got more stuff to burn, it's just going to keep burning. <clears throat> That's why fires are so dangerous. So here are four examples of greed. And the point is us. You know, we always want more. We're never satisfied. You know, this give, give idea applies to me. You know, where I can never get enough money, I can never get enough fun, I can never get enough this, that, or the other thing. That's the way life is. We tend to be very greedy, and we always want more. You think, oh, that's, that's plenty. No, it won't be. Wait till tomorrow, you'll want more again. You know, is there, think about something that's really fun. What, what, what do you think is the most fun thing to do you've ever done? What's, what's something somebody bite on that one? What do you think is the most fun thing to do for you? Bungee jumping. Bungee jumping. Have you done it? Yep. How many times? Once. Once. Would you like to do it again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Has anybody done something really fun that you've done several times? Go to Disney World. Go to Disney World. <laughs> How many times have you been? Uh, three or four times. Three or four times. Do you want to go again? Definitely. <laughs> well, why? You've been there three or four times. Yeah, I don't know. It's just fun. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever get with something fun like, oh, that, that's, that's so much fun. I don't want to do it anymore. No. It's like if it's fun, you always want more. You want more, and you're never really satisfied. And that's the way things are for us. We tend to just want more and more. It's helpful to see that. And it's helpful to realize, as far as from selfish perspective, we need to control those wants and desires and not become a greedy person who's just desperately seeking more and more. Very good. All right, comments and questions through verse 16. This is really different, don't you think, for Proverbs? Yeah, interesting. All right, well now here are a group of Proverbs that, that have like sort of an initial statement about what they are. Um, verse 17 not so much perhaps but the others do so we're going to kind of divide these up uh, 17 to 20 the eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother the raven of the valley will put it out and the young eagles will eat it there are three things which are too wonderful for me yes four which I do not understand the way of an eagle in the air the way of a serpent on the rock the way of a ship in the midst of, of the sea in the way of a man, they virgin. This is the way of an adulterous woman. 
She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. All right, verse 17 talks about the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother. Think about, what can you do with your eyes that show mockery and scorn? I don't do that, Brad. Hard time controlling that. that. But you, maybe you're good at rolling your eyes. You ever do that? I won't ask you to show your hand, but have you ever done that seriously, even like toward your parents? You know, people do that. Maybe you have. You know, kind of roll your eyes. There they go again. Well, what does rolling your eyes show? Exasperation. Yeah, like you're really frustrated. And why is that bad? What does that demonstrate about you? Lack of patience. Lack of patience and lack of respect if it's towards your parents. Especially if you do it seriously. I understand sometimes you're just playing around with that. But we're talking about seriously here. That your eye just mocks your parents. The way you look is just like, oh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. You know? And we tend to be really prideful and really disrespectful with that. What does he say is going to happen to that eye? <laughs> the birds are going to come and pluck it out and eat it. You know, I bet you that would solve the problem. <laughs> you know, let a few eyes get plucked out by a raven, and I bet we wouldn't roll our eyes anymore. You know, the point is, God's going to punish us. Be respectful. You know, you know how it is sometimes when you have like, when, when, when you're thinking about parents, it's awfully easy for us to feel like they're really dumb and they're really saying dumb things, especially when they like are trying to restrict us or they're trying to tell us not to do something that we really want to do. Like, that is so stupid. Why did I ever, you know, how did my parents get to be so dumb? Isn't that kind of, did you ever get that feeling? You know, that's an easy feeling to get. Part of that feeling sometimes comes from the fact we don't really know hardly anything. And so what seems really dumb to us may come to seem really smart to us when we actually learn a little bit more. You know, sometimes they've been through some things. And you've tried to do that. You ever have any little brothers or sisters? And they do something that you now know is really dumb. You did it yourself, and it's not very smart. And you try to tell them, don't do that. That's really going to be stupid. And they don't see it. They think, oh, no, it's smart. Well, just realize, sometimes your parents may be in the same position. You know, they've had experiences you haven't had. And what seems really dumb to you, and you're tempted to just roll your eyes, may really be quite bright, and you'll figure that out eventually. <laughs> so be respectful. I'm not saying by that parents are always right. Obviously, parents are human, too. We should not expect them to always be right. But we ought to show respect, just disrespectfulness. We, the smarting off, or being a smart aleck, is just not appropriate, Tessa. I think a lot of us, um, as teenagers especially, don't understand that our parents want what's best for us and they can see the big picture because they've lived longer and they've experienced the same things and we don't see that and so like you said it can seem really stupid to us but they know what they're talking about because they've been through it. Yeah, it's a lot like with your younger siblings. 
you've been th through things that they haven't been through yet. So you can see, <laughs> you know, this is not going to lead to anything good, but they may not have had enough experience to see that. Well, it's the same thing with parents. And I, I understand some of you have non-Christian parents and some of you may have parents who actually are not always wanting the best thing for you. But we certainly ought to give serious thought to that. Because a lot of times we're not talking about something where you're, you've got a non-Christian parent who's not, doesn't want you to go to church or something like that. A lot of times we're talking about, you know, a parent says, you know, don't involve yourself in this questionable activity, you know, and we're saying, oh, I can handle it, I, I'll be fine, you know, this won't, be, this won't bother me. Well, they've seen not only themselves, but other people, and they realize, well, it always, you know, I've seen how many times this has hurt. You know, you take a parent, for example, who's saying, this is a bad friendship for you. You should not try to get involved with this. Oh, yeah, it's fine. They, they don't understand. Or maybe this is a bad girl-boy relationship. We know you're not ready for this. This is not helpful to you. And we're like, oh, I know better than they do. Well, a lot of times they're saying that not because they just want to be ornery, but because they really do know those things. And, and they really have seen those things, and they really realize this is not wise. You're not mature enough. They're not mature enough. It's not going to lead to a good thing. You know, I'm kind of in that situation sometimes, um, you know, with some guys. You know, where they'll call me. I'm not their parent, but they'll call me about relationship issues. And sometimes you realize this is not wise. This is not helpful to you. You know, and you hate to tell them. I mean, sometimes they're like, oh, you know, but you realize, well, I've seen other people. I've seen where this goes. And what you're thinking right now is just not going to be helpful. You've seen that too. You've seen other people who haven't listened to advice and it's hurt them. So don't be a smart aleck. Even if you ultimately have to disagree with something your parents say because they're not God, and because occasionally you've got parents who aren't trying to lead you in the right direction, be respectful and don't have this rolling your eye kind of thing, whether we're talking about physically or sometimes you can roll your eyes in your head and not do anything otherwise, and it's still not good. Eric? No, no I was scratching myself. Okay. Other comments or thoughts? Well, what about 18 to 20? This is probably the hardest section in here. And, uh, wow. Three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. Now, the question is, what are these four, how are these four things alike? What's he saying about them? You know, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, the way of a man with a maid. And you're thinking, okay, so how are these two wonderful? And what's he trying to say by them? Now, one help might be, verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Now, I think that the best explanation of verse 19 fits what he's saying in verse 20. I'm going to suggest one view on verse 19. There are plenty of others. I've got several of them in my notes. And I don't have a strong feeling. But here's one that would fit verse 20 fairly well. And rather than just trying to confuse things by all kinds of different possibilities, let me suggest this one. If you have others, you're welcome to suggest them. 
But I wonder if he's talking about, you know, activities that don't leave any trace behind. You know, when you hear, see an eagle in the sky, it goes to the sky, do you see a trail behind the eagle? It's not like an airplane that leaves that, you know, see that streak in the sky. The eagle goes to the sky and you'd never know it had gone through. It leaves no trace. You think about a serpent on a rock. Snake slithers across the rock. And what do you see behind? Do you see footprints? <laughs> well, that would be hard because a snake doesn't have feet and because a rock doesn't show prints. So like there's no trace. You'd never be able to tell that the snake had gone across it. Or you think about a ship in the middle of a sea. How long does it take for the waves to just kind of fill back in behind the ship and you don't see any kind of a wake? Not that long. You know, pretty quickly after the ship passed through, you'd never be able to look at the sea and tell that the ship had gone back through because those waves just kind of cover that trail over. And the way of a man with a maid, which of course is what he talks about then in verse uh, tw uh, 20, where you can involve yourselves in an inappropriate relationship and then like, oh, no harm, no foul, nothing happened. And so look at verse 20 in that connection. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats, we're talking about uh, inappropriate relationship, and wipes her mouth. It's kind of like a kid with, uh, you know, eating cookies out of the cookie jar, you know, like chocolate gets over his mouth. Wipe the mouth, I didn't eat anything. You know, and nothing happened. Isn't that how a, an adulteress shows great insensitivity to her sin? She can just kind of, you know, walk away from that encounter as if nothing ever happens. You know, it's like nothing more than eating a meal. You know, wipe your face off, and I'm clean, it's good. You know, there's a lot of people who are like that. Their view of immoral relationships is no more than a view of a meal. You know, you enjoyed it, it's over, wash your hands, and you're good. Everything's, everything's forgotten about. Human, human beings have an amazing ability to dismiss guilt. To just kind of rationalize their deeds, and especially if they hide it. If you hide something, it's like it never happened. Isn't that the way people are? And you see people doing that with, with adultery. You know, it's like, as long as they cover it up, it never really happened. There's a horrifying lack of remorse. She eats, wipes her mouth, and says, I've done no wrong. I'm good. No trace. No, no, no paper trail. You know, there's nothing to show for it. You know, it's like, you know, people do this all the time. A guy will go to another city and have some kind of an encounter that he pays for and pays in cash. You know, there's no, nobody ever knows. You know, nothing ever done. Maybe they don't even exchange names. So she didn't even know who it was. So like nothing ever happened. Like it, it didn't, you know, if, they, if, if I covered it up, if there's no trail, then I didn't do anything wrong. That is such a fallacy. Because God knows. And I'll tell you what, your conscience still has that imprinted on it, whether you acted like it didn't bother you or not. It's still there. So I think that's the best explanation. 
is these are four things that just don't leave any trail behind. Just like a, a sinful woman will enjoy the sin, wipe her mouth, so to speak, and like nothing ever happened and she feels no remorse. That's a very dangerous situation. Kevin. How would that be too wonderful for him, though? Because verse 18, he says there are four th three things that are too wonderful for me. Wonderful in the sense of incomprehensible. Like, they just, it gives you wonder because it's like, how could that be? It's just, you know, it's kind of an amazing insensitivity to sin. Sometimes we think wonderful as being wonderfully good. But something can be wonderful that just leaves you, I, I just wonder how that could even happen. I can't imagine that. So I see it that way. Clearly, verse 20 is not a positive wonder, that's for sure. The ones in verse 19, the first three, are not morally right or wrong, but they are kind of amazing. I wonder how that could happen. You know, how can an eagle go through the sky and not leave a trail? How can a snake slither across a, across a rock? I say slither across a rock three times fast. But, uh, and there's no footprints, etc. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of amazing, but those are morally neutral, but the end of this is morally wrong. Questions and thoughts on that? That is a tough passage. Yes? It made me think of Satan, and when he uh, he takes us and he makes us do wrong, and we realize we do wrong, he doesn't leave us in the trail, and we can't tell. Sometimes we can't tell what we've done until it's done. Yes. Mhm. Mm Good point. All right. Other thoughts. All right. How about twenty-one to twenty-three? Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Alright, here's three things, even four, that the earth just can't handle. This is too much of a burden. A slave when he becomes a king. What's bad about a slave becoming a king? all the power he's going to take full advantage of it. Yes. A slave becomes a king, he's not got the background to handle all the power and he'll probably abuse it and make himself, you know, you know, impossible. I mean, you can't endure him. Um, I think it was Tacitus said about the uh, governor Felix in Acts 24, <coughs> he had actually been a slave when he was young and he was you know, able to obtain his release from slavery. And I believe it was Tacitus that said he exercised the power of a king with all of the, um, um, I've forgotten the word to use, but like with, with the mindset of a slave. <laughs> you know, that's not a good thing. You don't want to promote somebody beyond their competence. You take a slave and suddenly you make him king, it'll be a disaster. You know, I mean, would you like it if we had just a common, ordinary citizen that we could vote for for president? Just old Joe down at the, you know, well, down at work or, or down at the club or whatever. Would that be cool? 
What about, so how many of you go to, to public school? A few of you go to public school, yeah. I mean, Caleb, Tasha, what would you like just to pick out one of your random classmates and make them president? You think that'd be smart? No. No? <laughs> Why not? They don't make very smart decisions. Yeah, exactly. You don't want just a common ordinary person or a slave having all that much power. You know, we can, we can you know, ridicule our leaders a good bit, but <laughs> you know, if we were in there, whoa, that would be worse. You know, we might have more principles, but I bet we don't have nearly as much ability. Um, what about a fool when he's satisfied with food? Well, a fool when he becomes satisfied becomes unbearable. You know, he just then is, tries to run everything. That's not going to be good. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, she's probably going to just be a tyrant. Now she's satisfied. She's going to, you know, be arrogant and trying to show off and things like that. And a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. You know, when she becomes the boss again, wow, she's not qualified for it. Eric. The unloved woman which gives a husband reminds me of Ezekiel 16 when God took the Israelites and he gave them nice clothes and all this kind of stuff and then they did it, become arrogant. Not that God shouldn't have done that. But. That's exactly right. It's a good, good lesson. Mm -hmm. there's, there's so many times when you don't want somebody to be elevated to a position they can't handle. Proverbs 19.10 Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. I would also suggest Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. You know, he was a fool who became a rich property owner, and it didn't help him. And it didn't help anybody else. You know, a fool who has power is worse than a fool that doesn't have power. <laughs> Put it that way. Comments and thoughts? All right, how about uh, we're in Proverbs 30, verses 24 to 28. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The Shephanim are, are not mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard, he may grasp with the hands, yet it is in the king's palaces. All right. What, what do these four things have in common for creatures? Small. Yeah, they're small and yet... Really wise. They're really wise. You know, size doesn't always win the prize. And uh, wisdom is more powerful than strength. So you can have a very small creature that does some very great things. Physical limitations can be compensated for in other ways. So here are four little creatures, but actually you stop and look at it, they're very impressive for what they can do. And that's helpful for us because we may not be greatly gifted, we may not be very powerful, but we can accomplish a lot using the same principles as these four little folk. So what's the first small thing that he mentions? The ant. The ant. Agreed that the ant's small? Yeah. Well, what does the ant do that's wise? Prepare their food in the summer. Yes, storing it up for the winter when they won't be able to get food. So what would you say about an ant? What quality does it show in doing that? 
Foresight. Foresight, exactly. Planning and preparation for the future. So how can we be like the ant? Work before play. Think about a couple of uh, a physical thing or two you could think about. You know something that I see in young people that I feel like is unwise. I'm not saying every young person, but I think you'll agree with me. This is fairly general. I'll see a young person, even a fairly young person, ten year old, twelve year old, fourteen year old, who will get money and blow it. You know, buying candy and, you know, toys and all that. Because their parents are providing everything they really need, like their food and clothing and things like that. So the money they've got, they can just use for anything, so they use it for a bunch of stuff that's not worthwhile. And you realize, wow. You know, when they get to be 16 or 18 and can drive, they want a car, and then they're going to want to get out on their own and have to have provide a place and all that. And I bet there's many young people who, by the time they got to be 18 or 20, were thinking, I wish I'd had all that money I spent on a bunch of worthless stuff that I don't care anything about now, but I blew all that. You know, it would be so wise for a young person to plan ahead and store up for the future. But we're not like ants sometimes, <laughs> you know? And sometimes we think, well, it's not very much money. Well, you know what happens when you join together a lots of not very much money? It becomes more money, <laughs> you know? And so in a physical way, that might be a good application to learn from the ant. But I want you to think about spiritually. Are there some ways that we ought to learn from the ant spiritually? Prepare before the time comes, before the winter's there. So we should prepare spiritually before our end comes. Yes, definitely. Preparing before we die to meet the Lord. What else? The temptation. Yes. We need to provide for the bad times during the good times. You know, maybe you're not being tempted very much right now, and so you tend to coast. Will you be prepared for the next time the strong temptation comes? Or do you just enjoy this lull and not get yourself spiritually sharp and ready? I think that's something to really think about. Because I see people who, they're not being tested very much right now, and so they just kind of go to sleep. They go dormant. They don't really do anything. And they're not ready for the next time Satan comes at him full force. Or even other matters of spiritual preparation. You know, preparing with study goals or personal improvement goals or whatever. Just trying to think ahead. Eric? Like the gifts in Romans 12, I think it's important to be thinking about, all right, where can I fit into one of these gifts so that I can be useful in the kingdom of God as well and trying to work towards those things specifically. Good point. Yes. Yes. You, you always use foresight if you're going to be wise about your resources. Okay? And, and here's another thing about an ant. What do you see in ants? You know, maybe you wouldn't have thought so much about foresight, but it fits in with this. What, what do you see especially uh, impressive about an ant? Teamwork. Organized. Organized. Teamwork. Uh, 
that's very true. I'm thinking of something else. Very strong. That's very true. I'm thinking about something else. What would you always say about ants? Annoying. <laughs> That's very true. Especially because they get anywhere. Do what? I'm thinking about how active they are. You ever see ants just kind of sitting around? Ants work hard. I mean, what do you see? Get this line of ants going back here and there, here and there. They're always working. I think that's a lesson. We ought to be the busiest people on earth because we've got the most important mission. We ought to be the people who are always working, always active. We could learn a lot just from the diligence. And I think when he talks about they're providing for the winter, in part, it's how diligent they are in the summer to provide for the winter. So foresight and diligence, we learn from the ant. Any thoughts about ants? All right, the next one, sheponym, probably like a badger, or some suggest a cooney, which didn't mean anything to me, so a badger helped me more. Um, what does he say about it? They make their houses in the rock. Why do they do that? They aren't strong. They aren't strong, so they find a strong shelter to make their house. They recognize their weakness, and they take refuge in the rocks. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? What does that mean for us? We're weak, so we need to be sheltered in God. Exactly. We've got to see that we're weak and we need to take refuge in the Lord. Stay closer to Him so He'll protect us. You know, maybe you realize you've got a lot of weaknesses. And you may be frustrated by that. Rather than just wish it were different, play the hand you've been dealt and just rely on the Lord. Turn to Him. Let Him shelter you, protect you, etc. They use a lot of good sense. They know they're weak, so they find the rock where they can build their house in the rock and be protected. That's a really good one for spiritual application. Thoughts and comments on those Shephanim? Alright, what about 27, the locusts? What do you see about them? They are, because they don't have a king, they don't have a, uh, some ruler, and yet they continue to work hard. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to work hard and be disciplined if somebody doesn't tell us to do it. But these locusts with no ruler work hard anyway. That's pretty impressive. Do you work hard when you haven't got somebody standing over you saying for you too, and even spiritually? Do you take initiative even when you don't have somebody telling you to do it? But I think there's another point along with that with the locust. What would that be? They work together. The unity and the teamwork. Isn't that true? Locusts kind of travel in swarm. 
Now they all kind of are on a team. They don't even have a ruler to organize them and yet they stay together and they work together. Can you imagine how much more effective locusts are because they do that than if you just had stray locusts here, there, and yonder? You know, the locust, it's almost like the locusts work like a well-oiled machine, as uh, my son always used to quote from uh, the movie Hoosiers. But, uh, you know, they can just, if you thought of them as being an attack army, the fact that they are just in unison, they're just devastating. They just destroy everything in front of them. And we would be such a much more fierce war machine against Satan if we had more teamwork and unity and just really fought together against the devil shoulder to shoulder. There's, there's tremendous applications of these things. I'm kind of throwing out the idea but you could go back and you could meditate on each of these. You know, you could take a week and really just keep thinking about each one individually and how to apply it and how to let that change your life. Because these little creatures teach us really important lessons. Comments and thoughts on the, uh, uh, the locusts? Well, what about verse 28, the lizard? What do you learn about the lizard here? Insignificant. Yeah, doesn't amount to much. We're not talking about some big lizard. We're talking about the kind of lizards we had in Brazil, which are, you know, yay long, just really skinny body. Uh, well, what does he say about this insignificant lizard? Hmm. Going to make it may be the same point even with the spider. So thank you for mentioning that. I think lizard may be right, but but the point's going to be the same either way. What does he say about it? in your hand. Yeah, it's that insignificant. However, what? It lives in the king's palaces. So what does that tell you about it? You can't keep them out of even the most prestigious places. They they are persistent. They are ambitious. You know, there's nothing that'll take the place of persistence. You take a little spider or lizard, no matter what you do, they're there. Now, we don't have any experience around here with lizards, but we found that in Brazil. And lizards were everywhere. You could not keep those things out of the house. You had lizards in the bathroom with you. You had lizards wherever. You know, it just, it's, like, it's like trying to keep a spider out. Can you keep spiders out of your house? It's true with a lot of other things. You can keep ants out of your house. Figure out how to do that. Or, or mice, for that matter. You may not live in a place that is infested with that. But, uh, you know, but, but uh, think of a spider or a lizard, lizard in some climates. You just can't keep them out. Nothing will take the place of being diligent, persistent, bold, continuing to push forward. You know, a lizard may be weak, but it will get in there where nobody else will. You know, it can, it can it'll wriggle its way inside. You know, if we have that kind of determination... You know, they're not necessarily big or able or whatever, but they're determined and they keep after it until they finally get in. We need to have that kind of mentality spiritually. We're like lizards. You know, we may not be big, we may not be tough, we may not be capable, but we're determined and we're going we're gonna to serve the Lord no matter what it takes. I comments or questions on those four little creatures. Lizards are also really fast and hard to catch. 
They are. We used to live in California, there's a bunch of them out there, so we'd always try to catch them. I think we should be that kind of thing um, versus Satan. He, he's trying to catch us. We should be like lizards and get away and be very fast. Alright, yeah, good. Very good. Anything else? Alright. Yes, Tessa. Um, I was going to say, back when my family, we lived in Texas, and we had lizards, what they would do is they would crawl through the drains and get up into our bathtubs, and one time we finally caught one. We accidentally cut its tail off, but it still kept crawling around and getting through that, even though it had been had its tail severed off. And so we need to um, be determined, like you said, no matter what, and even when we go through struggles or trials, keep on going. Excellent. Very good. That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting to see all that. Agar is saying, and you can see how much he's just sat back and observed what God has made, and he attributes that all to God, and he sees how much <clears throat> all creation like shows us how we need to live. Uh, that's just really cool that we need to sit back, and we need to look at what God's made for us and see how we can learn from it. That's an excellent point. I've noticed that with the book of James as I've been teaching it more recently. Man, he sees spiritual applications and all sorts of things in life and natural phenomena or whatever that I hadn't thought about it that way. But we really need to develop the habit of everything around us, we look at it to try to get spiritual lessons from it. That's a very good point. Yeah, that's worth thinking about, because that's exactly what he does. Man, it's amazing what he sees, you know, lessons related to God in. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and work on the rest of this.